Okay. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Asher Kitshanu Bumitzvotav Vitzivanu La Asok Bidivrei Torah. Blessed are you, source of life, creator of all, who makes us holy with your mitzvot and has given us the mitzvah of engaging with the words of Torah. This week's Torah portion is called Chaye Sarah. Um, and it begins, which means the life of Sarah. And it begins with a description that the first line is that Sarah dies. Um, and uh, Abraham, just to give you a summary of what happens in the portion, Abraham needs to find a burial place for her. And so the first episode is an uh, elaborate description of the negotiation between Abraham and someone named Ephron, who is a local where he's living in, around Hebron, about purchasing a field with a cave in it called the Marat HaMachpelah, which means the double cave or the cave within a cave as a place for him to bury Sarah and where he'll eventually be buried, where um, uh, Isaac and Rebecca will eventually be buried, where Jacob and Leah will eventually be buried. Um, and he purchases it and buries Sarah there. And then in the next chapter, um, he wants to find a wife for his Isaac, who's not married yet. And so in another very elaborate, detailed, long chapter, he sends his, uh, the head of his household um, to the old country where he had come from, he and Sarah had come from so many decades before in order to find a wife for Isaac. And this is the story of how Rebecca uh, becomes Isaac's wife in the next chapter. And then in the last piece of Chayesara, that Abraham, it says remarried, actually has more children and then dies at the age of 175. Um, and his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, bury him in the cave of Machpelah, which he purchased. So there's a full, uh, so this, um, the arc of these chapters is it begins with Sarah's death and the purchase of the cave, and then ends with, then Abraham manages to marry off his son, so they, Okay, and then Abraham dies and is buried in that very cave. And so that's the arc of um, this, uh, uh, this portion. Hold on a second. Roni asked, why is cremation not part of Jewish tradition? As isn't cremation the oldest of burial traditions? Uh, we don't know if cremation is the oldest of burial traditions and it's a big world. Um, in the Middle East, Cremation was never adopted, not just amongst Abraham, but among, it's not, it's not something that happens. Pharaohs are interred. Um, and uh, so it's just a different, as far as I can tell, it's just a different tradition. Um, I don't think one is better than the other or anything like that. Um, in in it, it, the ancient practice in the Middle East 
<clears throat> is that the body is placed in a burial cave. Um, and then once the body has decomposed, the bones are collected and put with the bones of the ancestors in usually in, um, there's a place in the burial cave where the bones are collected and placed so that there's room for more, for future bodies to be placed in, in there to decompose. Um, Jones says, doesn't that have to do with concepts of keeping the body intact to meet God whole, so to speak? Those are later understandings attached to a tradition that's more ancient than the explanations, if you understand what I'm saying. Um, uh, but there are beautiful teachings about, and, and what Judaism, and this is not where I want to spend the whole time, but what Judaism develops out of this tradition is um, an incredibly beautiful um, practice that involves preparing the, treating the body as sacred, washing it with care, saying blessings and verses from Song of Songs and other parts of the Bible so that the, and then dressing it with love so that the body uh, is treat, it, it's just a beautiful Jewish tradition how the dead body is treated uh, with extreme care and love. Um, but if we're talking about the origins of the tradition, then you're talking about maybe maybe historical guesses like Gwen saying it takes lots of fuel to cremate. May, you know, maybe collecting that much wood in the ancient Middle East was not viable, but we don't actually know. So we're talking about two different one is a historical kind of guesswork about why something originated. The other is the incredibly holy and beautiful practice that develops for treating the body out of that tradition. Okay, I'm going to uh, continue now, but I'm glad you asked that question, Roni. Um, so what I wanna do with at least the first part of my class is honor a teacher who just passed away. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who was the chief rabbi of England. Um, and then after he retired from that position, became a full-time public intellectual and teacher of Judaism. Just passed away last week, at the, unfortunately at the age of 72. And especially since he, um, uh, retired from his position uh, as chief rabbi, he has um, emerged. He emerged as kind of one of the one of the few um, Jewish teachers whose teachings are read by Jews from many different religious backgrounds. Right? He was that kind of transcendent person, as Gwen was mentioning to me. Um, that Adin Steinsaltz, Rabbi Adin Steinsaltz, who also passed away in the last few months, was another, another Jew teacher, rabbi, who was able to reach across denominational and uh, religious divides to speak to a much wider audience. So I've been studying Rabbi Sachs's and have, you've probably heard me cite him in some of our classes. And I'm sorry that he's gone. 
Um, so in the Jewish tradition, you honor um, a teacher by sharing their Torah, by sharing their teaching. So that's what I wanted to do was to share Rabbi Sachs's teaching about this Parsha today. Um, and I'm gonna screen share in a moment so we can all see the text together. Uh, oh, and Roni said, it was shared with me that this was done with Ramdas, formerly Richard Alpert from a prominent Boston Jewish family. His body was bathed and oils were rubbed on him and he was surrounded by garlands of heavenly flowers and dressed in beauty. Thanks, Roni. Yeah, Ramdas, the, the wonderful Ramdas. Okay, um, so let me share this screen and we're gonna honor uh, Rabbi Sachs's memory in the way I'm sure he would wanna be honored, which is by studying uh, studying his, his teaching. Hold on. Oh, hold on a second. I think I need to do that. Oh, sorry, give me a minute. Um, the window I'm looking for is it went away okay hold on a minute let me close that find the window sorry for the delay everyone i had it right here okay there it is now let me try to screen share there we go okay so this is from his website this is uh, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. And let me just say a little more about him. He, uh, he did not, he was not raised, um, he, had some, he, had a, he had some Jewish education and he was from an observant family, but he had a secular, primarily secular education and only decided to become a rabbi after he'd already uh, received his PhD in philosophy. So he represents one of those unusual people who uh, had, was incredibly erudite and also was able to bridge um, secular and uh, religious disciplines. Uh, kind of like say uh, Heschel, you know, and others of this century who could, could, could bridge that gap. Uh, so, he had a meteoric rise in British Jewry and his, when he was in his early 40s, he was appointed chief rabbi, which is a funny and anomalous um, position that was created in the British empire and in other um, European uh, nation states uh, as a way to, as it were, make, make after the Jews were liberated from the ghetto of, of Europe uh, to make, give them legitimacy. Uh, but ironically, it also meant that Judaism was centralized in those European countries and the kind of diversity that America represents where there's all these different ways to be Jewish never really developed in England or Europe. There's, in, in England, there's the liberals who are the reformed Jews and then there's the Orthodox. And, uh, 
the gap between them is yawning. And Rabbi Sachs had actually a, a very, very, very challenging time trying to lead, quote unquote, British Jewry. Uh, it's, a, it's a very fractious bunch. Uh, imagine if there was a chief rabbi in the United States. Uh, I can't even imagine it. Um, <laughs> who can cross that bridge? Which is why, again, when he um, retired from that, it liberated him to share his more his traditional but much more liberal leanings uh, in a public forum without being uh, always risking getting attacked from his right flank or getting uh, or or the left for that matter. Okay, so there we go. It turns out that Rabbi Sachs of blessed memory had prepared a full year of covenant and conversation of his Torah commentaries. Um, and so his office is gonna keep on distributing these. So this is the final piece, the final commentary that Rabbi Sachs was able to write about Chaye Sarah called Beginning the Journey. And uh, I would just like, let me see if I can move these windows around so I can see, whoa, okay. No, I can't, all right. Oh, there we go. Okay, sorry about that, everybody, I'm just learning. Um, great, okay. I'm gonna read it to you and I'll interject with details. A while back, a British newspaper, The Times, interviewed a prominent member of the Jewish community and a member of the House of Lords, let's call him Lord X, on his 92nd birthday, the interviewer said, most people when they reach their 92nd birthday start thinking about slowing down. You seem to be speeding up. Why is that? And it made me wonder if Rabbi Lord Sachs is uh, talking about himself also, knowing his time was limited. Lord X's reply was this, when you get to 92, you see the door starting to close and I have so much to do before the door closes that the older I get, the harder I have to work. We get a similar impression of Abraham in this week's Parsha. Sarah, his constant companion throughout their journeys has died. He is 137 years old. We see him mourn Sarah's death and then he moves into action. He engages in an elaborate negotiation to buy a plot of land in which to bury her. As the narrative makes clear, this is not a simple task. He confesses to the local people, Hittites, that he is an immigrant and a resident among you, meaning that he knows he has no right to buy land. It will take a special concession on their part for him to do so. The Hittites politely but firmly try to discourage him. He has no need to buy a burial plot. The Hittites say, no one among us will deny you his, this burial site to bury your dead. He could bury Sarah in someone else's graveyard. Equally, but no less insistently, Abraham makes it clear that he is determined to buy land. In the end, he pays a highly inflated price 400 silver shekels to do so. By the way, the exchange between him and Ephron is just a great example of, um, of uh, uh, 
handling, you know, back and forth. Efron says, no, what's, what's a plot of land between me and you? Take it. And then Abraham says, no, 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 I must compensate you. No, 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 yes, please, I must compensate. And Efron says, okay, what's 400 shekels between friends? So Abraham shells it out and gets the land. The purchase of the cave of Machpelah is evidently a highly significant event because it is recorded in great detail and highly legal terminology, not just here, but three times subsequently in Genesis, each time with the same formality. Here, for instance, is Jacob on his deathbed speaking to his sons. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hittites. Rabbi Sachs continues, something significant is being hinted at here. Otherwise, why specify each time exactly where the field is and who Abraham got it from? Immediately after the story of the land purchase, we read, Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and God had blessed Abraham with everything. Again, this sounds like the end of a life, not a preface to a new course of action. And again, our expectation is confounded. Abraham launches into a new initiative, this time to find a suitable wife for his son, Isaac, who by now is at least 37 years old. Abraham instructs his most trusted servant to go to my native land, to my birthplace, to find the appropriate woman. He wants Isaac to have a wife who will share his faith and way of life. Abraham does not stipulate that she should come from his own family, but this seems to be an assumption hovering in the background. As with the purchase of the field, this course of events is described in more detail than almost anywhere in the Torah. Every conversational exchange is recorded. The contrast with the story of the binding of Isaac could not be greater. There, almost everything, Abraham's thoughts, Isaac's feelings, is left unsaid. Here, everything is said. Again, the literary style calls our attention to the significance of what is happening without telling us precisely what it is. And now, having posed his questions in good Talmudic fashion, now Rabbi Sachs offers his answers. The explanation is simple and unexpected. Throughout the story of Abraham and Sarah, God promises them two things, children and a land. The promise of the land, rise, walk in the land throughout its length and breadth, for I will give it to you, is repeated no less than seven times. The promise of children occurs four times. Abraham's descendants will be a great nation, as many as the dust of the earth and the stars in the sky. He will be the father, not of one nation, but of many. Despite this, 
when Sarah dies, Abraham has not a single inch of land that he can call his own. And he has only one child who will continue the covenant, Isaac, who is currently unmarried. Neither promise has been fulfilled. Hence, the extraordinary detail of the two main stories in Chaye Sarah, the purchase of land and the finding of a wife for Isaac. There is a moral here, and the Torah slows down the speed of the narrative as it speeds up the action so that we will not miss the point. God promises, but we have to act. God promised Abraham the land, but he had to buy the first field. God promised Abraham many descendants, but Abraham had to ensure that his son was married and to a woman who would share the life of the covenant so that Abraham would have, as we say today, Jewish grandchildren. Despite all the promises, God does not and will not do it alone. By the very act of self-limitation through which God creates the space for human freedom, God gives us responsibility. And only by exercising it do we reach our full stature as human beings. God saved Noah from the flood, but Noah had to make the ark. He gave the land of Israel to the people of Israel, but they had to fight the battles. God gives us the strength to act, but we have to do the deed. What changes the world, what fulfills our destiny, is not what God does for us, but what we do for God. That is what leaders understand, and it is what made Abraham the first Jewish leader. Leaders take responsibility for creating the conditions through which God's purposes can be fulfilled. They are not passive, but active, even in old age, like Abraham in this week's Parsha. Indeed, in the chapter immediately following the story of finding a wife for Isaac, to our surprise, we read that Abraham remarries and has eight more children. Whatever else this tells us, and there are many interpretations, the most likely being that it explains how Abraham becomes the father of many nations. That's his meaning of his name, Avraham. Av is father. It certainly conveys the point that Abraham stayed young the way Moses stayed young. As it says about Moses, his eyes were undimmed and his natural energy unabated. Though action takes energy, it also gives us energy. The contrast between Noah in old age and Abraham in old age could not be greater. All it says about Noah is, after he comes out of the ark, it says Noah planted an orchard, then he got drunk after he harvested the grapes. And then that's the end of the Noah story. It says, and Noah lived 350 more years <laughs> and died at the age of 950. But it's like, story's over. There's Whatever he did after that, it's over. So that's what he's referring to. 950 is a good, good old age, I guess. Um, perhaps, though, the most important point of this Parsha is that large promises, a land, countless children, become real through small beginnings. 
Leaders begin with an envisioned future, but they also know that there is a long journey between here and there. We can only reach it one act at a time, one day at a time. There is no miraculous shortcut. And if there were, it would not help. The use of a shortcut could culminate in an achievement like Jonah's gourd, which grew overnight, then died overnight. Abraham acquired only a single field and had just one son who would continue the covenant. Yet he did not complain and he died serene and satisfied because he had begun, because he had left future generations something on which to build. All great change is the work of more than one generation and none of us will live to see the full fruit of our endeavors. Leaders see the, see the destination, begin the journey, and leave behind them those who will continue it. That is enough to endow a life with immortality. May Rabbi Sachs's memory be a blessing. Let me, um, he also asked questions, which we don't have to address right now. Why does God use self-limitation? Does this essay inspire you to action? If so, how? And what actions do you want to take to ensure you have begun the journey? Okay, I'm gonna stop screen sharing so we can see each other again. Great. Great. Beautiful, huh? He's such a good teacher, such a beautiful writer. Now I want you to understand again, if you're new to Torah study, that if you go to his website, you will find 15 years of his teachings. And each year the teaching is different. And that's the point again about Torah study. He's giving us what he is gleaning from it this year. And uh, I thought it was a beautiful teaching, but then I, again, I think most of his teachings are both erudite and eloquent and beautiful. Anybody wanna make any other um, comments about that? Ah, Avraham, what is the root? And does it relate to Rechem? Okay, so Avraham, which means Rechem is womb, Rachamim is compassion. That would be a beautiful, Beautiful, uh, Drash Joan. Um, you know, Avram's name is Avram until God makes the covenant and asks, tells him to be circumcised and changes his name to Avraham. And the etymology of Avraham in, in that passage, let me just find it for you. Um, no longer will you be called Abram. Your name is to be Abraham because of Hamon Goyim Netaticha, I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. But that et etymology isn't exact. Um, Avraham Hamon. Uh, so I don't actually know, um, Joan. That's a good question. Um, 
hold on, I have to, um, this is an important call, just one thing. I'll call you later. Apologies. Um, so Roni says, so he focuses on leadership as that is what is sorely missing at this time. Well said, Roni. That clearly is something he decided to focus on in his last, um, his last year. I, I mean, he knew he was very ill, even though he didn't disclose that until very recently. Good. So there's that teaching and, and I just wanna honor him and encourage you to look at rabbisacks.com, S-A-C-K-S, rabbisacks.com. Anytime you want a dose of uh, this wonderful man's Torah, okay? Okay. So now I want to, um, oh, earlier while I was reading, Roni commented, like Rabbi Sachs, I find it difficult to understand why this description of buying land for burial is in the Torah. What is the metaphor? Does it have to do with ownership, with the meaning of owning land, the Jews as wanderers? Please explain. <laughs> well said, Roni. I hope Rabbi Sachs did address your question to a certain degree. I would add that one of the um, one of the paradoxes, polarities of being Jewish is that we're wanderers who also have the promise of a land, and that tension is continuous in Jewish history to this very day. That's not an answer, per se, because I don't know the answer. It's a great mystery. I mean, for one of the, for it's one of the great mysteries of being Jewish uh, that we are both outside and inside at the same time. The word Ivri, Hebrew. Abraham is referred to as an Ivri, and that gets translated as Hebrew. Is Ivri is another mysterious word. Uh, Ivri comes seems to be related to the root laavor, which means to cross over, to uh, pass through, or to be on the other side, to be um, uh, to be over here. So there's something about Abraham's basic identity that he's willing to leave his parents' home and go over there that is fundamental to Jewishness. Um, and uh, it means that, no, we're not, we are of the land, but we're also not of the land. We are, we are, we are part of the, uh, we're part of the human drama and yet we're also asked somehow to transcend it because the otherness of Abraham was also his capacity to perceive a reality beyond what seemed to be presented in life, to perceive that there's a uh, creative energy in the, that, that makes, that creates all of this and to want to relate to it. So there's a, an, a questing to Abraham's name also. The ephemeral life is nomadic per se, says Joan, well said. And uh, uh, it also speaks of needing, says Deborah, to deal with the small concrete steps in order to move forward. If you're going somewhere, there's no way to get to there except by taking the next step. 
Ellen said, our Philadelphia Torah study group, which sadly is not meeting during COVID, ugh, all would read after Rabbi Sachs, nice, as well as Shefa Gold and others. Yes, find your favorite Torah teachers, everybody. It's beautiful, beautiful. Hey, let me take you in a different direction that also, um, uh, that about this cave, because this amazing cave, that burial cave that Abraham purchases has a really beautiful, um, beautiful teaching in the Zohar uh, that we'll spend some time on now. So here, let me get this source. So first of all, what's the Zohar? I'm gonna say again. Um, the Zohar is, this is what a volume looks like of the newest English language translation. I, I have the set. The Zohar is a mystical, free-flowing, fantastical interpretation of the Torah. Um, that came that emerged uh, in the Middle Ages in Spain and Provence and rapidly spread to every corner of the Jewish world and became the kind of uh, core text of Jewish mystical interpretation of the Torah. So saying mystical means that The Zohar looks at every word of Torah, as, as Jewish mysticism says, as another name of God, as uh, a way to make connections that aren't logical or straightforward, but guide us into the inner, the inner world or the greater consciousness. That's the purpose of the Zohar. And the Zohar asks the question, as uh, do um, we might, is, why this cave? Okay, so there's Abraham. Uh, let me find the right citation. There we go. Um, there's Abraham. And it says, excuse me. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. Such was the span of Sarah's life. And Sarah died in Kiryat Arba, that is Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abraham proceeded to mourn Sarah and to bewail her. Then Abraham rose up from before his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites saying, I am a foreigner living for a time among you. Sell me a gravesite among you that I may bury my dead here. Um, and they go back and forth. And Abraham got up and bowed low and said, if you're really willing to let me bury my dead here, listen to me and entreat Ephron, son of Zoar, for me and let him sell me the cave of Machpelah. He owns it, it is at the edge of his land. Let him sell it to me as an, as an inalienable gravesite in your midst at the market price. Um, so a question you could ask is, well, why did Abraham want this cave? He seems to know exactly what he wants. He's not going through the burial cave listings. Uh, in fact, not a single other one comes up. 
Ah, let's see what Gary says. Isn't the cave a metaphor for our tendency to bury the finest aspects of ourself out of a fear of change, including the greatest change, death? Maybe. That's not where this story goes. Um, it, it even goes in the um, other direction. Listen, so Abraham has his eye on this cave. So this becomes an opportunity to tell a story about why. And where the Zohar goes is really beautiful. They say that if you remember at the beginning of the previous Parsha, Abraham is sitting in the entry to his tent in the heat of the day. And God is speaking to him from the trees. And then three men approach. It's all very dreamlike. And he runs out to greet them. And he says, come stay, wash your, well, wash your feet. Uh, I'll fetch a calf from the herd. Okay, now there's, that's all that happens. He runs off, he gets a calf. But in this dreamy, in this dreamy sort of um, reading, the Zohar says, he went to, went to fetch this calf from the herd and the calf ran away from him into the entrance of a cave. And he went down into the cave. The calf ran away, it entered a cave. And so Abraham followed it and then he saw Adam and Eve buried there. He knew that they were Adam and Eve because he saw the form of a person. And while he was gazing, a door opened into the Garden of Eden. And he perceived the form standing near it. Um, he saw, moreover, a river of light that illuminated the cave, and there was a lamp burning. And Abraham then coveted that cave for his burial place, and his mind and heart were set upon it. So, as Rabbi Larry Kushner puts in, in one of his uh, first books, which I still cherish, I don't know if it's still in print. It's called A River of Light, The River of Light, Spirituality, Judaism, and the Evolution of Consciousness. Just a small title. Um, it's, it, it's a lovely book. When I read it, it was one of the first books that I was still, um, I wasn't even in rabbinical school yet. And I was, it was one of the books that like completely jazzed me for like what's going on here. Um, uh, let's see. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, Roni says, I don't think we bury the finest aspects of ourselves. Right. Different interpretations of what the darkness of the cave could be. Um, and uh, Joan says, the cave is the deep place where the soul of Sarah is now ensconced. Abraham's deep place, perhaps. Um, and Deborah says, so Abraham paid attention to mystical, otherworldly experience to make a decision. Um, and uh, he talks about this story being a dream. That's right. That's what Larry Kushner does. He treats the whole 
stories of dream, the way the Zohar is dreamlike in its evocation. Um, where else does the Midrash, um, where else does the Midrash um, um, treat an amazing moment like this? In the story of Moses, when Moses is shepherding his flock on the far side of the wilderness and he sees the burning bush, the Midrash says that one of his baby um, kids ran off and Abraham followed it to retrieve it and then saw the burning bush. So there's something about chasing, there's the same motif happens with, with Abraham. He's following the calf and uh, leads him into this cave. So it doesn't just lead him into a cave, it leads him to the Garden of Eden. Where, where a river of light is flowing. And he knows that's where he wants to, um, he's going to have to. Uh, let me read something that Larry Kushner says. In setting out in search of lunch, Abraham found the cave, humanity's parents, the Garden of Eden, and his own ultimate burial place. Whereupon he returned from the kitchen and said, all we have is cheese and some tuna fish salad from last week. So always in the space of between ran to the herd and took a calf. Um, I love the way he says that. Like it can happen at any moment. We could be reaching for the refrigerator door, seeing the refrigerator light, and all of a sudden it's not the refrigerator light, it's the river of light. It can happen anywhere, that moment. And so Abraham knows that, that the cave may be a place, a physical place, but it's not, it's, it's, it's the doorway into um, the Garden of Eden. So this story is telling a story that death is by no means in um, a, a place of darkness in the cave, but that death is actually when we re-enter. So, you know, you may not know this, but Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden, is uh, the Hebrew name for paradise. Paradise comes from the Persian word for pardes which means orchard or garden. And so um, Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden, which is described as a bustan, as a walled garden, which is one of the places in the ancient Near East and still to this day, also when I was in the Southwest, you build a walled garden, you fill it with plants and trees, and it creates a mini ecosystem that creates its own humidity and its own, um, a contained place in a in in a dry climate, um, and this th th that's the image of this beautiful this 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 beautiful paradise. And it says that in Genesis, and a river flows forth out of Eden to water the earth. Um, so that's 
in the mystical literature, it's not just a river of um, water, but because of a pun, the word Nahar in Hebrew means river. The word Nahar in Aramaic means light. So it, there's this beautiful merging of the two meanings of the word so that the river that flows forth is a river of light. And Abraham knows that that's his final destination. Oh, good. Gary wrote, a, included uh, Emily Dickinson. I love all the poems, you know, Gary. Let me read it. Here is a little forest whose leaf is evergreen. Here is a brighter garden where not a frost has been. In its unfading flowers, I hear the bright bee hum. Prithee, my brother, into my garden come. Thank you, thank you, thank you, because we are in the realm of poetics here, of poetry. So that's the explanation that the Zohar gives for why that cave. And machpelah is an interesting word. It means double or a cave within a cave. So there's something about this fascinating inward journey. Come, prithee, my brother, into my garden, come. Gwen Tapper is quoting Yehuda Amichai, who writes a beautiful poem called Searching for a Goat or for a Child has always been the beginning of a new religion in these mountains. Oh, that's a I love that poem. And I never thought of it in this regard. Can you, can you chop out more of that poem and so we can see it? Mm -hmm. It's really an amazing. Uh, so Yehuda Amichai was the, the most important modern poet. Uh, of, of uh, Israel, he died now quite a few years ago. Oh, here it is. It's called, An Arab Shepherd is Searching for His Goat on Mount Zion. Well, the it's called Jerusalem, but he didn't title any of his poems. The editors always made up titles. I didn't know that. Okay, I'll read it to you. So listen to this. An Arab Shepherd is Searching for His Goat on Mount Zion. And on the opposite hill, I am searching for my little boy. An Arab shepherd and a Jewish father, both in their temporary failure. Our two voices met above the Sultan's pool in the valley between us. Neither of us wants the boy or the goat to get caught in the wheels of the Khadgadya machine. After we found them among the bushes and our voices came back inside us laughing and crying, searching for a goat or for laughing. And afterward, we found them among the bushes and our voices came back inside us laughing and crying. Searching for a goat or for a child has always been the beginning of a new religion in these mountains. Yeah. Yeah, we should look at more Amichai. He's so fantastic. <sighs> In between going to the refrigerator and coming back, we can find a whole new path. 
Hmm. Brother Theodore, what do you mean, Gary? Remind me who brother, who's Brother Theodore? Here it comes. Theodore. I stared into the void. The void stared back at me. Neither of us liked what we saw. <laughs> but which Theodore is that, Gary? But what's his last name? He just called himself Brother Theodore? Oh, okay. I will look him up. Thank you. Well, let's cycle back to uh, Rabbi Sachs just to remember his beautiful teaching, but I really wanted to take that, oh, Theodore Gottlieb, okay. I really wanted to take that little excursion with you into the meaning of that cave. So let me bring up Rabbi Sachs one more time. Abraham has been promised and promised the land and has been promised and promised to become as new offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky or the sands of the shore. His wife is now dead. He doesn't own a thing, a piece of land. He doesn't own, he doesn't own us, a dunum. He doesn't own an acre. And he has one unmarried son. I love that he points that out. And I love that he teaches that the reason for all the detail in these two chapters is to show that, well, yeah, okay, there's the promise, but there's a lot of human action that has to take place. Detailed, diligent, precise, um, uh, in order, for that promise to ever manifest. I mean, y'all know the, um, the very well-known joke about um, the person who's, Chayetov um, said, I stared into the void and the void filled me with light. That's beautiful. So the two jokes that, that I know that are all about this are the one that um, about the person who is uh, in a uh, flood zone in his house and um, he's, he, the, everyone says you have to evacuate. And he says, no, God will provide. And um, a, a rowboat comes to his house with people saying, come on, come on, the waters are rising. He says, no, God will provide. And it keeps going and the waters keep rising. And then he's on, sitting on the roof of his house 
and a helicopter comes to rescue him and says, grab this, come on, we'll, we can evacuate you now. He says, no, 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 God will provide. And then he drowns. And he goes to heaven and he says, to God, God, what's the story? I've had my faith, put my faith in you all this time. And God says, Nudnik, I sent you a rowboat. I sent you a helicopter. That's the joke, right? And the other one is about the, the Moshe who wants to win the lottery. This one's been around a long time too. And Moshe is a pious Jew and he does good deeds all the time. He gives a lot to charity. And every year he comes, on, he comes into shul on Yom Kippur and he says, God, just let me win the lottery, please. I just wanna win the lottery so that I cannot be so poor. I'm so poor. And he says this year after year. And finally, in the middle of services, the heavens open and a voice comes out of heaven and says, Moshe, at least meet me halfway, buy a ticket. That's the joke. Okay, so I think that's one of, I think that's the funny, that's the, those are the jokes that come to mind about Rabbi Sachs' teaching. Uh, well, my friends, let's let's end there. And I just wish all of us uh, the ability to take the small steps as Rabbi Sachs taught us and may his memory be a blessing. And before you go, if you'd be so kind, we'll stay for a healing prayer and then be a minion for anyone who needs to recite Kaddish. So um, if there's someone 